In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I continue my conversation with Sam Selikoff about building client-side applications, this time focusing on how to keep your API code simple and how to push more of the complexity into the client. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 107. Hey everyone, before we get into the discussion with Sam today, make sure that you go back and listen to episode 106 before this one, if you haven't already, as this is kind of like a part two of that conversation. We recorded it all together, and I just kind of split it up into two episodes because it was a really long conversation where the first half was sort of focused on one topic, and the second half was focused on another. So there are some times in this conversation where we reference things in the previous episode as if it was a continuation of that conversation. So if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely check that one out first. And if you have listened to it, enjoy this conversation with Sam. So the next piece that I wanted to get into is what your server stuff looks like and how much of that stuff like you aren't doing anymore that maybe I am still worrying about in like my server rendered applications uh, how much code like you have to write there, how complex it is, what sort of stuff it's doing. Because I know um, typically based on the conversations I've had with you in the past, your Ember apps are most of the time you're backing them with like a Rails API that you guys are building yourself and managing mm-hmm. yourself. And I know the Ember map site has a Rails API backing it, right? Yep. So what does your Rails API look like when you're making this like concerted effort to push as much logic and responsibility as possible into the client. So we use um, something called JSON API, which is just a format for how to structure those JSON responses um, and requests. And this was um, created by some of the folks who work with Ember, but basically it's just some conventions around it, um, around your API. There's also some tools and there's some gems in the Rails ecosystem that help if you are building a JSON API API. Side note, JSON API is like the worst name ever because, it, you know, it's a, it's a spec. There's so many other JSON APIs that don't implement the JSON API spec. It, it, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But you can imagine, you know, um, GraphQL is a, is a similar idea where uh, it's really a spec that's designed to serve fat clients. It's, tr- it's designed to serve uh, clients with rich interactions and capabilities to enable them to build new ui features with spending the littlest amount of effort possible on your back end that's kind of the that's kind of where it came from so um with json api we use this gem in rails called json api resources which lets you just be very declarative and high level um to get your resources defined and so um yeah you end up basically it's kind of like you don't write controller code is kind of the way to, to say it. You, you, your, your Rails app still has models. It still has database tables. You still define relationships. Um, it's just that your Ember app knows about those. You're kind of actually driving those from your Ember app. So like I was saying, if we were going to build a new app or a new feature, we would start by doing it in Ember and let the UI and the, the business cases that we're doing in the product drive our kind of domain modeling mostly. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there's some things that you just know you're going to do based on the back end, but sure, you know you kind of drive them from the front end, and then you say, okay, you know we have a new podcast page. I know I need a podcast and a podcast episode, and a podcast has many podcast episodes, and my Ember app expects to to be able to send a get request to slash podcast and include the podcast episode, also slash podcast slash one, 
and maybe send a patch request and maybe send a delete request to slash podcast slash ID. So now I know with this feature, I need these five new endpoints and these two new models. So I'm going to go to my back end. I'm going to create the two new resources and I'll say that a podcast has many podcast episodes and then that's basically it. So it's a, it's kind of like a, a lot of the stuff you would do in a traditional app. You just get to um, derive from those, um, the structure, the schema. And um, again, because you're building this in a way that your actions are going to be these dumb CRUD actions, they all end up looking the same. Interesting. So you said that like you're not really writing controller code. When you say that, do you mean like you literally aren't creating files that go in like the controller's directory and that stuff is basically you're pointing your routes essentially at like dynamic stuff that's kind of handled for you by the the gem that right. json api resources gem right so the gem would let you say that we have a new podcast resource and so you say like this dot resource podcast and by default that's going to give you crud access to that resource and it's gonna you're gonna define the attributes and um yeah that way and it's just, just gonna know like based on some convention like okay the you like we're saying okay we're creating a new resource called podcast so it's gonna create register all the routes related to that like your standard like podcasts slash id or podcasts for the index or delete a podcast slash id whatever all your standard like seven crud actions or five crud actions or whatever the hell it is yep and um and then because the resource is named podcast, it also knows that it should be mapping that directly to like the podcast active record model. Exactly. So you literally aren't doing like new file podcast controller dot RB. Exactly. Crazy. So in that situation, then how do you handle stuff like, I mean, maybe the first one to talk about would be like validation. I guess in Rails, you specify validation on the models, right? Yep. So that just works. That just works. So you still have to specify the validation, of course, because you need to kind of maintain the integrity of the data that's on the server and protect against people maliciously curling in, like whatever the hell they want. Exactly. So so when we talk about auth, yeah, we can get an auth for sure. But, um, you know, there's lots in this in this architecture. You move a lot of validations to the front end. That makes sense for that. You don't need the server to tell you that there's a blank field, um, but you don't. That's, that's not to say you don't validate on the server that there's not a blank field. You just, sure. your Ember app kind of knows about that as well. But yeah, you still have validations on, on the server. And again, the JSON API resources gem and the spec and all this stuff, there's enough conventions between how that data is shared such that if your Rails model has like a validation um, that you know email can't be blank and your Ember app tries to make that request, if you haven't handled that situation on your Ember or someone curls your server, let's say, it's just going to respond with a 422 with um, like those errors and like an errors Got field. It. So what about validations that can only happen on the server? Like make sure this email address is unique because you're mm-hmm. creating a new user or something. I'm yeah. guessing like situations like that are where you would opt for like a pessimistic UI instead of an optimistic UI because you sort of, the odds of there being a problem are, are high enough that... You have to kind of worry about it. So I guess like what does that look like? Because obviously you can't write any validation code on the client that says make sure the email is unique. So that's going to be one of those situations where the server validation and the client validation aren't like one-to-one the same like they might be in a lot of situations. Like the server is going to have extra validations that couldn't have existed on the client at all. Yeah, so definitely like you would mark this model in active record Rails land with validates email unique or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But if you really wanted to be fancy, you could make it on your Ember app. So when you tab out of the email, once they've put in, you know, um, Adam at nothingworks.com, you do yeah. a get request to slash emails fill, uh, with a query. Um, that says check, try and get all the users that have the um, email matching this. Exactly. And again, you're not using that to prevent or to decide whether someone can create the new thing. You're just using it to provide more feedback. Um, and just to make the experience a little bit better because odds of there being like there's a race condition there of course but like odds of odds of someone else signing up with the same email address between the time where that get request tells you there's already a user and the time it gets to the server like that's probably never going to happen you still probably have to handle it and that's why you have that validation on the server as well exactly but from a practical perspective in terms of like real world things that are going to happen when people are interacting with the app like that situation will probably never actually happen right but you you definitely want to have that the lowest level where yeah, the, the server is the ultimate guard of your canonical data. And if your server ever responds with a 422 or, or invalid request or something and errors hash, you want your UI to be able to display that. But um, so there's some, there yeah. is some, there is duplication there, but you're doing the duplication so that you can have a richer experience. Got it. So one thing that I think is worth pointing out there that I think is interesting to reinforce some of the stuff that we talked about earlier is um, someone who's like me, who is like a backend driven person for the most part you know rendering uis on the back end might think like when you were giving that example of like okay well when someone tabs out of the email field we make a request and what popped into my head for a second there that i had to kind of shake off that i think would pop into a lot of people's head is like oh yeah we'll make a request to ask the server does this email already exist but you're not asking the api that specific question you're you're asking the api for the information you need to answer the question yourself you're not creating an email or you're not creating an endpoint that's like Slash unique check emails. if email is unique right and and seeing if come back true or false you're saying how would i determine if it was unique well i would check all the users and see if there's any that have an email matching this so you're Use just making that yeah you're just making a get request on like the list of users filtering it by their email and then you're going to do that count on the client basically to say if the array is empty that came back then i can proceed assuming that this this email is unique if their length of the array is greater than one then it's not unique but that logic is on the client not on the server just specifically answering the unique question it's just giving you a list exactly and this is the kind of thinking that you start you don't even know you're doing it anymore but you've gotten used to thinking in this way where um you're like in the same way that when you're in, in, in server land all i have are my database tables and all i have are select insert and update and delete how can i get my business logic from those raw crud operations in the same way you're thinking about your client-side app you're thinking i have a dumb api i know what my resources are i know i have these four operations available how can i do that and transform it into the business logic i need yeah, totally. That's that's cool. So I think something that would be cool to talk about here, building on what we talked about before, we gave that example earlier in the conversation about like publishing a post. And you said that that's the sort of thing you should probably still be setting on um, the server, like setting that published at timestamp. So how does that work in this like JSON API resources world where you're not even like writing controller code or anything like that? How is that timestamp going to get updated? And what request would you be making from the client to do that? Like, what's the resource that you're hitting? Is it just like a posts resource and you're passing published true? Or are you passing a timestamp from the client, but just overriding that timestamp on the server? 
I'm just trying to understand like wh- how would you build that? Yep. So there's a couple ways you could do, um, um, you know, publish true. Um, you're making a request to publish it, and then the backend's doing some e- extra logic, and then you get a confirmation, so you know. Or you know what we try to do is follow that kind of that DHH keynote where he talks about making everything resources. So really, you're creating a publication, and a publication has one post. Let's say so. There's a foreign key relationship there. Mm. You have the post and the client, and then you create. You 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 can just say click publish. Let's say, but when you're clicking publish. Um, the Ember app in the action that you're writing is going to say like store, create record publication, passing in the post, which is the post that you have. So you have the post in the client. The request that ends up getting sent, let's say, is a post request to slash publications. And the request body is going to be a JSON API document with the attributes that you have. So maybe not published app, but let's just say, let's say there's an attribute like schedule that or something. So you schedule it for the future. But then it's also going to have a post ID, which is going to be that foreign key. Yeah. Now, on the back end, you're going to have a publication resource. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean you have a publication active record model that's backed by a database table. But you can, in JSON API resources, you have, you know, separate from your models, you actually have a slash resources where you get to define the resources your server exposes over the wire. So you're going to and have... Is that is that separate to models like is that only for stuff that's not backed by a model or does that have to duplicate everything that's in the models directory it does it it you need one for every resource even if there is a model but uh you don't have to duplicate you you, you you're not duplicating anything but you're you're creating it as sort of like this thing that sits on top of every model yeah exactly and it lets you do cool things like you know um yeah like materialized attributes or like attributes that don't exist on the model so it's just that again a nice kind of that separation so let's say you were to create that um that publication resource you could say it has one post so that's going to let json api resources deal with like normalizing that data from that payload and setting that um like giving you that that um key that you need and then you could do a couple things let's say you want to have a publications table so it could be a table where you just create it um in which case it's truly dumb but let's say let's say you need and then you're just using the created at value from the publication as the published ad exactly so you can would that be mirrored on the client too so you would have like publications isn't you'd have a publication object on the client and that's where you would and you could have an alias property on your post which is published at which is just alias at publication dot created at let's say okay so the uh publication would have one or belong to i can never remember which one is which mm-hmm. the the pod or the post. The, the post and the inverse would be true in the other case so you'd be able to kind of get that relationship from both ends right so that's one way you could do it but let's say you do need to do something custom that's not just you're not able to just um kind of uh, unwind all of the stuff you need to do in this dumb graph creation let's yeah. say you need to send an email or sending a yeah. post publishing a post involves like pinging a third-party service so you can always drop into a controller and write a controller code. Like the point of abstracting away the controllers is that 90% of what we're doing is like CRUD operations on resources. So we should get rid of that. So you can always drop into a controller if you want, or you can use um, like the hooks on resources and, and models where you have like an after save. So maybe um, before save on your new publication, you ping your service or you send an email or something. And that's just like a little bit of logic where you would perform that. And then you save it and, you know, that logic could also set attributes like published at on the post. Um, 
And again, that data would be sent up to the client. And so that's kind of, there's, there's a couple different escape hatches there basically. Mm-hmm. So if you were going to do it in a way where the server was like updating the published at timestamp for you directly, and like that was something that was on the posts table instead of using a publications table, not every update or post request would be setting that right because like you might just be creating a post that's not published yet or you might just be editing the title of the post and not actually right so let's say let's say you have a post um and the way you do that is by setting live as true so you set live as true and then um your server you can do in one of these escape hatches either in the controller method or in like a before save hook or something like that you could say, did live switch from false to true? And that is the way that the client is telling me they're intending to publish this thing. So you just do a little bit of translation there. Exactly. And so you say, did live go from false to true? If so, let's go ahead and do some extra logic and update the published at. And also, if live went from true to false, let's do that. Otherwise, um, they published that's not going to change. And if they t- give me a request and happen to send over a published at value as part of that request that's different, I'm going to say that's an invalid request. Sure. And then how do you get that information back to the client? Like if you're doing it in a way where you have like post.live is an attribute mm-hmm. that Ember knows about, does Ember yeah. also know about the published at? And that just sits as like an empty exactly. thing until it's reconciled basically with the server? Just like the ID. So you could say, you could in your Ember template, you could say if curly curly if post.published at, you know, um, and then um whenever that thing gets set by the by the server or you know again if you were looking at it and then your colleague happened to publish it and you got a websocket event that updated your data store and now published that as true then um your template would render that just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors and that is Rollbar. so there are two major problems with relying on your users to submit bug reports to you when they find something broken in your app number one you can't discover all bugs this way and number two some users don't even bother submitting bug reports they just wait for you to fix it and if you don't they just leave the service now the best software teams practice proactive error monitoring which means you detect all the errors in your production apps and services in real time and then you can debug important errors in minutes or hours, often before your users even notice. Uh, Teams from big companies you might have heard of like Twilio, CircleCI, Instacart, they use Rollbar to do this. With Rollbar, you get a real-time feed of all your errors so you know exactly what's broken in production, and Rollbar automatically collects all the relevant data and metadata you need to debug those errors so you don't have to waste time sifting through logs. Debugging errors with Rollbar is crazy fast. You get the exact stack trace linked directly into your code base, the request parameters to easily reproduce the issue yourself, a data on which user is affected so you know if it's the same user repeating the same error again, what browser and operating system, basically everything you need all in one place. They also have this awesome telemetry feature that's kind of like getting a black box recorder after a crash but for errors. It shows you all the browser events leading up to that error. Uh, So if you aren't using Rollbar already, there's a special offer just for full stack radio listeners if you head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio create an account and install rollbar in your application rollbar will give you a 100 gift card that you can spend to support any of your favorite open source projects at open collective so thanks to rollbar for sponsoring the podcast this week back to the show I think like what I'm what I'm understanding here, and I think this kind of a, gets back to what you kind of talked about before, where it's like we're not there yet, but we're getting there. Is like the approach that you guys take with building these APIs that are using 
JSON API resources to try and do as much of the heavy lifting as possible is like in a perfect world, my server would be just these declarative JSON API resource declarations. And, and that would be it. And, and maybe there's like some other thing that someone figures out how to like declaratively specify my Stripe API calls or, or other stuff. But right now it's like you do as much of that as possible but because you are just in a regular Rails app, you can drop down to writing the custom server code yep. um, when you need to. But that's kind of like not the first course of action. That's kind of like, okay, when it's absolutely necessary, we kind of bypass this convention and we just kind of drop down and do it ourselves in raw code. But like that's the exception, not the rule. Exactly. Um, another example I just thought of that's, that's a good example is uploading a file or an image, let's say. Where normally yeah. you would say, we need to upload an image. All right, let's create a new controller code. We get the image, we upload it, we da da da, all this work. And then when we're done, we respond, right? So what we do now is we upload directly to S3 from the client. Yeah. But but you don't want anyone to be able to do that. So you need um, some auth there. So you get a signature. So your back end is still a source of truth, but you need to get a signature first. So you try to sign the document that you're going to upload, and you do that by um, creating a signature. So you. So so just to before we get too deep into that, do you mean like a signature, as in a signature is a resource exposed through the Rails API, and you're basically saying, "Hey, I'm I'm about to upload a file. I need you to give me like kind of like a disposable one-time use key that Amazon is going to accept when I try to send the file." Exactly. Yep. And you're just treating that just as like a resource. So like you might be... Just a resource. You, do you create a signature? Yeah, it'd yep. be creating, right? You wouldn't just be getting. It'd be creating. So you're asking for a new one. And it would point to a file um, or, or or yeah, there's like a file attribute or something. I, I'm try- I can't remember exactly right now what it looks like. It either points yeah, to yeah, a yeah. file just or it has a file. Though, Con- is- but conceptually, right, you're sending a post request. You're, you're asking, trying to create a signature and your server is going to basically say... Okay, client, this is a request to create a signature for, you know, avatar.jpg. And what the server is going to do is go to S3 and get that signature. And it's going to mm-hmm. respond to the client with it. So you're off at that at that point. It's not that anyone can upload. You you have to have that signature, which only your server can generate. And, it, and of course, like that's just based on the fact that you're authenticated with the application using whatever exactly. API token is stored in the local storage or cookie or whatever your authentication kind of mechanism is for your whole app exactly and then the client's able to upload directly to s3 and gets back a url which is uh or or an s3 key which it can use to generate a url to like your cloud front version of the image let's say or to Mm -hmm. or to cloudinary or whatever right let's say you you go to cloudinary with your signature you go to s3 with your signature you get back basically something that gives you a url to that asset that you just uploaded and you set that url as like the um, avatar URL property on your user model, and then you just do a and patch request the to the user. Exactly, and that's just another good example of like work that normally would have been happening on the server is now happening on the client. The server doesn't know that you uploaded the image and attached it, and it's not like getting the response back from Amazon and saving into the database. All that's happening on the client, and you're just informing the server about it when you're done the work. Yeah, this is like a really beautiful example of this because now like your client, because it knows all this logic, it makes building like rich uploaders with progress bars, all that stuff easier. You're just 
you know, True. and recovering from offline, all this kind of stuff. It's like you just want that in the client and now it's all there. So this is like a really cool yeah. example of that. And, and that's the sort of thing that a lot of people would try and do directly to S3, even in a server rendered app anyways, because you don't want to like double up on the bandwidth of like passing the image to your server, then from your server to S3 and all that sort of stuff. Exactly. So when you're doing this work to like request the new signature from the server, that's going to give you permission to sort of send this file to S3. On the client, are you treating like a signature as an Ember data resource or is this one of those things where you are making like an API request directly from somewhere that's on the UI side of like the client side kind of data store? I haven't looked at this code in a long time, but I'm pretty sure you're just creating a signature model. Got so it. it's just, it's just, mo- I mean, that's what, if it's not like, I'm pretty sure it's like that, but that's what our answer is to everything. I mean, everything that just try to be constrained, don't try to go out of CRUD operations on Ember data models. You're going to have a much better time because eventually you're going to want to use that somewhere in the UI or it's going to have a relationship to something or you're going to want to abstract it and it's just easier if it's a model. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So, um, I think that's a good example because, Another question I was going to ask you that I think maybe we can talk about more too, because there's probably situations where that specific workflow isn't how it works based on how this third-party service works. But one of the questions I was going to ask is if you're doing everything on the client, like inevitably you somehow have to deal with this problem of like not leaking secrets on the client, you know, like if you're trying to do something with Stripe, there's a reason why you have to actually like process the payment on a server where you're in like a safe environment that the client can't see what the secret key you're using or whatever is. But if you're going to eventually try and push that logic to the client and maybe you can already do this and, or maybe you can't, that's something I'd be interested in and in talking about. What does the approach look like to make sure that you're doing this sort of communication securely? So like one approach that we kind of talked about is like the server is still responsible for sort of giving you these like temporary like credentials mm-hmm. Um, but for something like Stripe, what are you guys doing right now? Are you, are you doing, are you creating Stripe subscriptions and stuff on the server or, or have people figured out a way to do that directly from the client or what's up there? Yeah. So you definitely still keep everything. Um, your client app is, is unsecure. It's not a secure yeah. thing. We could take our entire Ember map front end code base. We have like Ember map front end and Ember map back end. Uh, we could open source the entire front end thing and not leak any secrets because there's nothing secret yeah. in there. It can't be. You're just shipping the entire app in JavaScript to the client. So you can't put anything secret in there. So um, it's kind of like what you were saying, which is, um, yeah, you create secret data on the server and then you share it with the client securely. Um, you know, for auth, we usually just rely on Rails sessions because that's all kind of done by default and the browser already works by default once you have session data it just it just works so once mm-hmm. you um, create that session that's given to you by generated by Rails and you use on every request and so you're just kind of good to go there um, when it comes to things like yeah creating a signature you know you put your secrets in the environment variables on your server and so your server is able to get a signature for a given document to S3 or it's able to create a, a subscription to, to Stripe. You know, you, the Ember app knows has a subscription model, which is a schema of the data. And you can have the Ember app attempt to create a subscription for a team, let's say. But then the actual logic about it would be the same kind of thing where the server, you're going to write some code either in a controller or in just like a before save or after save or something like that. Uh, you create the subscription, go to Stripe. 
and then you come back with like subscribed at field kind of thing. So right now in like the Ember map code base, for example, you have custom controllers for doing like Stripe stuff when someone's like actually signing up to pay and putting their credit card on file and stuff. So they actually have like a, me- a membership. Yeah. Uh, I didn't write this code. <laughs> yeah. This particular yeah. But code, like but... it's one of those things that's outside of like the JSON API resources kind of conventional wheelhouse. Exactly. You're going to drop down and either, you know, and you're still going to use the idea with the escape patches is like, if I'm just trying to create something, I'm going to keep it conventional. And then usually either before I save it or after I save it, I need to do some extra work like creating a Stripe subscription. So that's kind of going to be what it's going to look up. It's going to look like. And then I think like what I would like to get into kind of next, I guess, um, is, you know, you sort of talked about how in a perfect world, hopefully one day all this backend stuff is like commoditized as people figure out ways to turn more and more of these things into just like external uh, services and dependencies, just like how we use Stripe to do payment stuff. You might use something like Firebase to basically store all your data. Exactly. But so Firebase is a tool that I'm interested in learning more about. I don't know how how much you've used it, but I bet you it's more than me. And I bet you you at least have the right mental model of it. So I'd love to learn more about like how does something like a data store as a service, which is also an API, I guess, as a service, how does that work? How do you communicate with it without leaking secrets because now that is your server so how do you ask the server for the credentials to be able to put a record into firebase or something you know right i did find this um this code in our code base we actually don't have the controller or it's just the subscription controller in this case it's just like inherits from json api controller or whatever it is Mm. but um on the resource there's a before save charge stripe so that's what does the stripe work and then it just sets like a stripe customer id and a subscription id on the model and so that's kind of the, got it. that's that's an example of that escape hatch got it makes sense um firebase is awesome we had a really cool success story with firebase um at uh ted where we worked we were at this uh at a conference and having to build an app that was going to work real time between an ipad and a, and a macbook and we had like not a lot of time it was like a last minute idea from the organizer we you know, we can't say no, like we have to, you know, put that feature request on a card and wait, like it, we had to build this thing. And, um, you know, because we were comfortable with Ember and everything, um, it really is this idea taken to the logical conclusion where, you know, you define your models in your Ember app, a post and a comment, and then you basically install an add-on that's like an Ember Firebase integration thing. And then now every time you click post.save in your Ember app, it just kind of works. Um, you know, you, you, you sign up for Firebase, you create an account, and so your data is secure within Firebase. And then there's some authentication workflow to get your Ember app, you know, authenticated with Firebase. So people have to sign in with a username and password, let's say, or some OAuth token uh, scheme, something like that. But once it's authenticated, you're just making your API requests to Firebase. And so does, so does Firebase have like a, an identity component to it like for user identity like i don't even know what firebase even is so uh, i just know like people say firebase and you can build javascript <laughs> applications so they just use firebase and yeah that's it. <laughs> that's you don't it. have to do anything else you just yeah press the firebase button on your keyboard and you have an app <laughs> i mean it really is yeah. kind of like that so basically it's like yeah you 
I think the simplest way to think about it is like, let's say I gave you an endpoint and if you just, um, post to that with some JSON, like I'll persist it and give it back to you. And then there's ways for you to request that data and I'll take care of normalizing it. If there's some conventions there and, and retrieving it and stuff and updating it. Um, as far as the user identity stuff goes, um, and off. And I'm, I'm only asking about the identity stuff from like a perspective of authentication, you know, how do I make it so that only someone who's on my site with the Ember app open can put stuff into my Firebase database and not just someone who has curl open on the command line. That would be a similar, that would be a similar answer to the question of how do you make sure your rails app can only um, accept uh, data. Uh, but that's because like I have a session with the rails app and I'm have a cookie that's like giving me access. Right. So it'll be the same kind must, of thing with Firebase. Uh, so do you have to use like Firebase's like authentication? Like I'm looking at their list of products here and like authentication, I guess is one of their things. And so do you have to use like Firebase auth to be able to have someone request and store data into Firebase from the client? Yeah. we Maybe you can integrate with like Auth0 or other auth services or something like that. But right. yeah. in general, you need to like outsource the authentication in some way. So In some way, yeah. So I, I, we did this like two years ago. It looks like they support Google sign-in. So that's an example, right? Where let's say you do the Google sign-in thing, your Ember app goes to Google, gets that that session data and stores it, let's say in a cookie somewhere, which then tells Firebase that the requests are valid. So it's going to be, it's going to look something like that, whether it's, there's a way for you to go directly to Firebase and just say that I am who I say I am or go through a third party auth provider. But it's architecturally, it is going to be basically the same thing that you do with your rails app. It's just, um, how that session data is, is created and stored. Is it going to be Gone. one of these services or is it going to be some secret within your Firebase kind of app? But um, So so what is Firebase like? What is the data store? Like, is can you do like relational data? Is it like a NoSQL sort of thing? How do you do like, you know, how do you request to include a resource like you would with JSON API, which would do like an eager load on Rails or something like that? Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know anything about it. So talk to me like I'm a complete idiot. Well, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I'm not I'm not an expert. And all that stuff, really, from the perspective of the programmer, at least with the, the setup we use, is implementation details. So, you know, in Ember, you, you do Ember generate model user. And you give it a first name and a last name. You're going to have a file in your Ember app called user.js. And it's going to export model with a user as a uh, first name as an attribute string, last name as an attribute string, age as an attribute number, let's say. And then you're going to have a post model with some attributes. And then you're going to say user has many posts. And that's all in your Ember app. And when we did it and I installed Ember Firebase, I was able to create relational data. So create a user, point it to three posts, let's say, save them all. And it went all to Firebase. And I could query them as well as a graph. So I could say get slash users include uh, posts, let's say. I could also yeah. open up a separate browser. Let's say I'm rendering my template says like user dot each user.post as post, render a list item with post.title. I open up a separate browser in the Firebase console. I like create a resource. And there was some sort of like PHP my admin thing where you can create yeah, resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Created a post and like entered the user key or whatever somehow associated with the user. And my Ember app just updated because it's real time Crazy. and it keeps it up in sync. So it was basically inferring the schema in some way from my Ember data stuff. Um, or however that adapter layer is taking the, the data from the cache and whatever payload it's generating to go to Firebase, it just did all that for I didn't have to think about any of that. It was it's pretty amazing. Yeah. 
Um, so one question I have that maybe you don't have the answer to this, but maybe you do say like, like I think a fear that people have with working this way is becoming like too dependent on external services and like what if they go out of business what if google shuts it down just like happened uh with that thing that facebook bought right like what was that other like database service started with a p i think Mm -hmm. anyways they shut it down and it was a big problem for people can you get like your data out in a way that you can migrate it to something self-hosted that you know for sure is always going to be there if you needed to so that's exactly why we don't use firebase on our personal projects because it feels like you are kind of locked in um, mm-hmm. my biggest thing with Firebase is like the format again, because it, the entire, the entire server is basically an implementation detail, including the format of the data as it goes across the wire. So if I'm building and testing my app against Firebase, Firebase is basically a dependency because it, it makes all that stuff opaque. Now, what yeah. I would love would be like a JSON API, um, hosted JSON API. So if Firebase communicated with my Ember app via JSON API, then I would know, like I could pull the data out of something like a Firebase, but and then make my own Rails server if I needed, if I were needed to. Um, yeah. But that way, you're using like a standard in the same way you can move from like MySQL to Postgres because there's a standard query language. Yeah. So that's the thing where I think, um, for me, Firebase like does a little bit too much. Ideally, I would have some hosted thing that still communicates in a format that is transferable. Um, but I don't know if that exists right now. Yeah, or even if it was like built as primarily a self-hosted tool, that there was also like a managed hosting yes. offering of. So there's so a like there was like it. a JSON API resource server that you could just literally install on an Ubuntu machine, and you could manage it all and deal with all that work yourself if you wanted to, or you could use like some service who charges a premium on top of it, like just like Heroku does on top of everything to just give you that security of knowing that everything's sort of handled for you. Worst case scenario though, you can get your data out and use the self-hosted thing. Just like if you're self-hosting Nginx or whatever, just like Heroku. Exactly. At any time I know we can get our rails app, our MySQL database and host it ourselves if we needed to. Um, I think yeah. some of the GraphQL tools might do this where, you know, GraphQL serves a similar purpose as JSON API. It's made to be flexible, queryable from the front end. And so um, you're seeing similar use cases pop up. And I do think there are like hosted GraphQL um, servers. But that 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 way, like you're building your React or Vue app or whatever, consuming a GraphQL backend. And it just so happens that I'm hosting my data right now but i could take that data and write my own graphql server and my front end will still work so i think that's kind of like the best of both worlds for sure just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors and that is cloudinary so if i had to describe cloudinary myself it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that i've ever seen in the past i used to use generic storage services like amazon s3 to store and serve images Uh, but after switching to cloudinary i genuinely cannot believe i ever did this stuff any other way Uh, so here's one example of how cloudinary has made my life easier Uh, so you probably know that typically images are are the heaviest resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that 
are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan uh, so if you're not already using them definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out it really is one of my absolute favorite services that i use on my own projects thanks a ton to cloudinary for sponsoring this episode back to the show um one other question i have about the firebase stuff is um you know you talked about with your rails api one of the benefits of doing it that way is you have these sort of escape hatches when you do need to do stuff where i need to write custom server code to do this or that right um it looks like looking at the firebase website they have like cloud functions mm -hmm. in firebase is that the sort of thing that you would use to do like i need to talk to stripe now and um create a subscription for this user or something and all that stuff would just kind of be handled using i guess their equivalent of basically like aws lambda style functions right i think so i mean i'm not a google developer expert but you know yeah. when we used firebase <laughs> it was super simple we didn't even need we didn't even use any auth we just we didn't even use auth that time because um, it was a super simple project but um this is exactly why we haven't used firebase like one is the transferability of it and two is like what are the escape patches like and i think yeah over yeah. time i think we even looked at this the other day you and i where there was a section in the docs for firebase and stripe so i think oh yeah, the stuff yeah, yeah. is going to continue to get built in and eventually there will be a time where you are you don't need yeah. the escape patches but yeah the cloud functions could be a way to do that i mean it seems that that's to me going to serverless plus cloud functions on amazon is a pretty big jump from like how we're doing rails apps apis yeah, with apps sure. right now. so we haven't done that yet but um it would be interesting to give it a try it is interesting yeah, yeah i think like we're it's early days right now for some of this stuff, I think. And you can kind of see like the the path that's getting paved and where it's going to go. But I think uh, based on this conversation, it sounds to me like going the have your own API, just try to keep it as simple as possible route might, pro might still be like the most practical approach. But it's really interesting to sort of keep an eye on on what is popping up out there and what sort of services are starting to appear. Yeah. I, I really can't overstate how much it changes, how you think about your backend when you start building apps like this. Um, and especially again, the way we do it, where we really go completely outside and completely front end first, we even have tests, you know, given a server that responds with a 500, when you try to post to slash users, what does my Ember app do? And we're mocking mm -hmm. that server out the entire time. So by the time you have that PR ready to go, it just needs the new endpoints and stuff in the back. 
you can just look at this single file and see how your mock server has changed. And then you just go like create those declarative resources and endpoints in your backend. It takes like no time. You're, you're kind of like, why am I doing this? You know what I'm saying? You're kind of like, this <laughs> yeah. feels like something I could offshore or something. It, I shouldn't even be doing this. It's, it's, it's like mindless. Um, and so it really makes you want to abstract the entire thing away. Yeah. So does that mean like you're not even really writing tests or anything for the back end unless you're doing some of this like escape hatchy stuff for the most part? Exactly. So you do write, I mean, you do write tests because you just want to make sure it's still a contract that you're fulfilling that API contract. And especially with like the auth stuff, like let's say, um, you know, me and Ryan as admins on the site can publish videos, but um, a non-admin shouldn't be able to, or adding a team member to a team or something like that. So we sure. have like a declarative solution for that too, where we have a policy file associated with a model where we say you have to have this role in order to do this action or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we still want to write tests against that because again, that's still our responsibility, but it definitely feels like it feels like writing a test for, you know, in rails, if you do like validates presence of email and then you write a test for that, you're kind of, that's kind of where you're like, maybe I don't need these tests. Um, yeah yeah you're kind of just making yeah like the code is like so declarative it's like borderline am i even writing code exactly so does it even really need like a like i'm not writing logic anymore right and it's weird to test like when you're not writing logic it almost feels like you're testing the framework or testing the tools yeah yeah so very cool yeah it feels like it's not your responsibility so there's definitely a future where i think a lot of this stuff continues to be abstracted Awesome. Really exciting, man. This was a really, uh, really fun conversation and it's got me more excited to, to try and find a good use case for getting my hands dirty, building an application like this workout tracker, Um, you know? Yeah. I've always wanted to build a really, really good workout tracking app actually. Yeah. Something like for developers where like you, well, not for developers, but for developer power users, like where you like track your workouts in like markdown essentially and it like converts it all and <laughs> there you go stuff like that so i don't know maybe could do something like that so <laughs> um yeah i don't know i don't have any other questions or any other things uh topics i wanted to get into but is there anything else that maybe you wanted to to talk about or any closing thoughts or anything you wanted to leave us with i mean one of the things that kicked off this conversation when we were just texting was uh uh about how this kind of thing is done in view um you know, and so that for me, having been kind of in the Ember community for so long and just thinking about it in this way and refining this way of thought, I would really love to see, I would love to talk with folks who are basically been doing this in other communities and see yeah. um, if they're thinking about it in the same way. Do they think about like the need for an identity map on the client? Is that just how they go about doing things like um, I'm reading data into that identity map and then rendering it from that? Um, uh, yeah. Like I, I would just be interested to see how other people are building yeah. these apps. Yeah, definitely. I think with Vue, like a lot of people use like Vuex, mm-hmm. which is you know a Redux sort of inspired thing that is like your central state management, and typically you are making API calls from stuff that's like on the other side of Vuex, not like on the UI side. Kind of feels like similar mm. in that sense, but I still think there's there's a lot of decisions you're making yourself about how things work in in the other kind of ecosystems that you're not making in in ember Mm. typically because there's view i think is is interesting in that it does seem to sort of have this sit in the middle of like the react community and the ember community where react is like there's a million ways to do everything figure it out make the decisions you want to make to build something the way you want to make it ember is like 
for people like me, I think, who I don't want to make any decisions because right. I'm worried I'm going to make the wrong decision. So if there's only one true way to do something, that sounds great. And then Vue is kind of in the middle where there's a lot more conventions, I think, than there is uh, in the React ecosystem and a lot more like recommended tools. Like this is the official router. This is the official data store or whatever. Mm-hmm but still not opinionated and conventional mm-hmm. to the to the level that Ember is at. Yeah, Vuex, um, I haven't really looked at, but um, there's definitely some overlap and just kind of vicariously following along with the React community over the years, seeing Redux come up to solve some of the need for state management and then hearing discussions about what, what about client-side state versus persistent state and where do we put persistent state and some people using Redux for that some people using Redux for both. And that's kind of where I would like to figure out what people are doing. Because um, Ember data is basically your your persistent state. It represents your server-side state. Um, it has client-side like derived state via computed properties, but it's really for your persistent state. And so, you know, I think Apollo, I have to learn more about it, but I think Apollo is is has come up yeah, to address yeah. some of that need. So I think they have this notion of like True. caching queries and uh, optimistic and pessimistic UI updates. And that's like the, the GraphQL specific sort of thing. Right. But I don't know. I think that's per query. I think it it works on the basis of queries as opposed to the higher level abstraction of like a resource like we're doing in Ember and, and JSON API resources. So, um, but I'm not sure. I, I'd have to I'd have to learn more about it or talk to someone. That would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I should have someone on to talk about Apollo sometime. Cool, man. Um, well, yeah, again, this has been an awesome conversation. Thanks so much for coming on and chatting with me about this stuff. Where can people sort of keep up with you and the stuff that you're working on? Uh, tw- Twitter is the best place for sure. Sam Selkoff at Twitter. So, yeah. And check out embermap.com if you're interested in upping your Ember game. Yeah, absolutely. We we make videos focused on um, kind of intermediate and advanced Ember development. So it's really focused on people who are doing Ember development day to day, maybe been using it for a couple of years, uh, find themselves in a job where they're using it and they want to understand some of the um, the more complex subjects and, and get the most out of Ember. So yeah, that's uh, embermap.com. Cool. Thanks again, man. Thanks for having me. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sam Selikoff about pushing complexity to the client side. If you enjoyed this episode and want to check out the show notes, they'll be available at fullstackradio.com slash 107. Thanks to Rollbar and Cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time.